Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, church family. I uh, am grateful to see your faces today and to be able to worship together today. I wasn't planning on being a part of the service from up on the stage until uh, yesterday. I asked Pastor Seth if I could just share a few words with you. And I just want to say thank you for being such a great church family. Uh, many of you know that my father-in-law, who's an elder at our church, led our men's ministry, did a lot of different things, passed away recently. This past Wednesday was his funeral. And uh, many of you came, so thank you, one, just for uh, blessing our family in that way of being there and uh, showing your support. And more than that, though, um, there's been food and encouraging notes and text messages and all that's been a blessing, but your prayers have been felt uh, by our church family. And so you hear that every once in a while from people saying that, but literally um, we've been lifted uh, by the, the words that you've lifted to our Father. And so I want to thank you for that as a church family. And so thank you so much for mourning with us while we mourn. And um, we appreciate it a ton. And just update uh, the family as a whole. People come up and ask uh, throughout the day, how's your family doing? How are things going? And I'll just tell you, it's up and down. Like there are moments that are great and there are moments that are not great. Um, but we are, we are well uh, because of the Lord and because of your prayers and because of having such a great church family. And so thank you so much for your love and your kindness. You really have loved us well. It aren't just words that I'm saying, so I appreciate it. If the Lord prompts you to send us an encouraging note, we always appreciate that, but don't feel forced to do that uh, if the Lord doesn't prompt you to do that. But uh, thank you so much for that. And um, also just a couple things that are happening in our church. Uh, this Sunday is the last Sunday that Covenant Church is going to be meeting as a church. Uh, and they're having their celebration service today. Uh, starts at 10 o'clock, so be praying for them. Um, but then also, that means something for us. We had an affirmation Sunday, not last week, but the week before. And uh, over 99% of you, and so just the way the percentages work out, I don't know what it was, 99 point something. Our executive pastor will know if you want to know the exact number. He'll be out in the lobby. Uh, 99 point something percent of you uh, affirmed uh, them joining us next week. About 93% of their church body affirmed them joining us next week. So about 93% of them will be joining us uh, next week. Pray for the other 7% that, I don't, that they find a good church home. Um, but, uh, but here's what I want to say to you, though. Uh, be welcoming to them. I mean, be friendly like you always are. But you think about what makes a church special. It's not great sermons or great music. It's relationships with each other. And so especially next week, will you be on the alert to be looking at people that you've never seen before at church and inviting them to your small group? Um, we're going to have a picnic afterwards, so we're going to have time to connect with each other and be able to talk with each other. Uh, but don't just hang out with your friends and the people that are in your small group. Be looking for folks that you've never met before and helping them get connected to our church body. And then some of you, I know summertime's a, a funky time for small groups sometimes, and you might be in a group and might be thinking, I could, do, I could probably lead this. Yeah, yeah, you probably could. So why don't you start another small group and you can invite some folks to be a part of that. Uh, we would love uh, for you to be doing that. And then this, this Monday, too, uh, tomorrow... Um, we're actually going to be um, taking ownership of that property on Strickland Road. And uh, Lord willing, the, you know, you've probably seen these things before, construction projects. Lord willing, we'll move over there uh, towards the end of this summer. And so that is our hope. I wouldn't say our plan yet. That is our hope uh, to move over there at the end of the summer. And uh, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to continue in the book of Hosea. And so we've got a, another pastor here uh, from in town, Fellowship Raleigh. Uh, Matt Schofield is here. So Matt, why don't you come on up here? Uh, Matt, other than the fact that he's a Florida State fan, is a pretty awesome guy. Um, he planned, yeah, well, give him a Southbridge welcome. Matt pastored a church in downtown Raleigh called Fellowship Raleigh. He planted the church 10 years ago, um, he and his wife. They've got four daughters now, so they caught up to the program of uh, planting churches in Raleigh. And uh, he's preached through Hosea before, 
and uh, blessed his body with that. So we're really glad to have him here with us this morning and wrapping up this, this book that talks about God's unfailing love. And so I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll open up the scriptures this morning. Father, thank you for Matt, uh, just a, another brother in Christ that's trying to connect people to Jesus for life change in downtown Raleigh. And uh, Father, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that's, that lives in downtown Raleigh that you would, um, they popped in here this morning, maybe they're catching a flight or whatever, um, but I pray you connect them to, to that, that body of people that love you and want to love this city and want to see people transformed for your glory. And God, I pray for Matt right now that you'd speak through his words. I pray you give him the exact words you want him to share with this group of people that are here this morning. You knew who was going to be gathered here. You knew why we would be here. You knew we'd need to hear these words and share this experience together. Thank you for your church that uh, we could just stay home and watch stuff online if we just want Bible content. But you gather us together to be sharpened by one another, to encourage one another, even just to see each other's faces and to sing these songs together. And God, I pray as you speak through his words, you'd speak a message corporately to our hearts, but then individually to us as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Bye, brother. Well, good morning. It's great to be here. Um, we are a, I'd just say, a true sibling church to Southbridge Fellowship. We're in East Downtown Raleigh, uh, really sibling in the truest form. I know that um, Scott and his wife Shanna did a church planning residency program uh, at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, and they did it the year before we did it. And I'm pretty confident that I sat in the same cubicle that Scott sat in just one year later. So in this little, little small space in this Little Rock, Arkansas town, there were a lot of prayers over the course of two years for the city of Raleigh and for the church in Raleigh. And so, and ever since then, over the past 10 years now for us and for you guys, 11, uh, we have uh, really had a great relationship, and I consider Southbridge Fellowship just the best kind of sort of older brother, encouraging, uh, uplifting uh, partner in the gospel here in Raleigh. And all of your leaders that I've gotten to know, Scott, John, Jason, who I know is not here, um, Seth, just everybody, Michelle, just so much encouragement from you guys. So this is a phenomenal church, and uh, I know guests speakers always sort of start off with that, right? But I really mean it, and I can really say it. And so I just want to say that, and it's an honor to be here today uh, for this time. So turn in the book of Hosea. Turn to the book of Hosea. Um, if you're normal and you can't find it, I'll just tell you that it's toward the end of the Old Testament. I'd say if you look at your whole Bible, it's about at the two-thirds point, if you're looking at the whole entire Old and New Testament. So get there to Hosea. We're going to be uh, going through chapters 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 this morning. Um, by the way, my, I have a wife, Kristen, and Scott mentioned four daughters. I think they'll be here in second service, so we're really excited uh, to worship with you guys. All right, Hosea. Now, Scott uh, asked me uh, at lunch not long ago about when we went through Hosea as a church and kind of what we saw or what I learned and I said, man, I don't know. I think I'm pretty confident. I said, I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask. I'll share with you what I know. But we were in the book of Hosea for 23 incredibly intense weeks. All right. Um, we still to this day refer to anyone who joined our church as a member during the Hosea verse-by-verse -verse sermon series as a true miraculous act of the Lord. Um, <laughs> The, uh, the, the, these were like hour-long sermons. This was in the early days. Um, so anyways, you know, I, 
I, I, can, I can do Hosea, you know, but doing three chapters today is a little bit of a challenge. He mentioned Florida State. I went to a state school. I didn't do Greek and Hebrew in college. Uh, so anyways, um, but I did go to seminary. But the, uh, so we're going to be jumping in, and, and Hosea is a great book. I know your theme has been Unfailing Love, and the title this morning is Prevailing Love. We're going to finish it with the prevailing love of God that I trust that we will see. Now, I do love Hosea. Joking aside, I love it. And I remember when, when, I, when I first wanted to study it and teach it in our church, I remember one of the reasons I wanted to is so many Christians, including myself, know so little about Hosea. I mean, we basically know the story, and I'm, I don't want to you know, assume you even know that. I mean, I know you've been studying it here, but fits your first Sunday. I mean, we, most Christians know the story, like the basic little story that Hosea married Gomer, and Gomer is adulterous and a prostitute and all of that, right? But that's like one and a half chapters of Hosea. And there's 14 chapters. And so it's just amazing to me, like so many Christians know so little about the book of Hosea. What else is there? What else is God saying there in this book? And are we actually only supposed to know that story and actually misapply it? Because I've never, I've always heard it applied as we're Hosea. And your wife, who like just cheated on you, is Gomer, and you need to stay with her. Like that's the only application I've ever really heard on the streets for Hosea, right? So we know so little about it. And so it's so fun to look at it and see how much more there is here from God for his people. And so, again, the title uh, prevailing love, and I don't want to be irreverent at all, but the book of Hosea, once you get into the rest of it, and even this part that you might have known before this series, I mean, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like the Jerry Springer show. I mean, I, seriously, I don't want to be irreverent and say that God's word, I mean, only in the plot, not in the quality or the content or or the characters or anything like that, but it's kind of like Dr. Phil or like it's like a, a, an afternoon talk show where you just see like an unbelievably dysfunctional relationship unfolding and the constant sort of, sort of you know, uh, cheating on and it being revealed and there being a confrontation. You got like Dr. Phil intervening and it's just this whole crazy thing. And of course, the dysfunction is all on our side and that's what makes it totally different, the book of Hosea from TV. But it is that way. And I think what we see Hosea doing is, is calling us back to the Lord who is faithful and challenging us to recognize his unfailing love. And so this morning we're going to see more of that in these chapters. So what I've got is three main points this morning. Three big encouragements, one from each chapter, on how we might experience God's prevailing love. So let me, uh, let me just quickly pray again uh, before we really dive in and I begin going through these verses. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, your word is perfect and flawless. Lord, it is awesome. And it speaks right to our very situation each and every Sunday and each and every time we get to abide in your truth with you. So we expect nothing less than that. This morning, we are excited. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just turn your bright lights on and help us just to have a holy parenthesis around our time in the Word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so what I want to do is look at three encouragements, as I said, uh, from, from this book on the title, again, Prevailing Love. 
So, so let, me, uh, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been swimming at the beach and the tide is pulling you so strong, right, that, that you're just sort of not paying attention and you're hanging out and before you know it, you have drifted maybe like a mile away from whatever that point is where you went into the water, right? And maybe you have a, have an, a blue umbrella and a yellow chair and a red cooler and you kind of, that's your fixed point, right? But you, if you're not careful, if you're not int- intentional, you drift, right? Most of us have had that experience. The point from chapter 12 is this. Do not drift away from God with assumptions about yourself spiritually. Do not drift away from God with assumptions about yourself spiritually. In this chapter, we see Israel has not been careful. They've made assumptions. They're descendants of Jacob. They've got this heritage of faith, and that's a blessing, but that's not a guarantee. Do not drift away from God by making assumptions about yourself spiritually. So let me just show you some of these verses. We are going to read everything today. So uh, chapter 11, verse 12 is where we'll start. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Look at verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. Look for the word Jacob here. Look for the experiences of Jacob as they are delineated here. And he will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he, that's Jacob, took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he, that's Jacob, strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Look at verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. It's really is really, really profound here, all the mentions of Jacob. I mean, if we were to do a study on Genesis, just those verses right there took us to like five chapters in Genesis. Just a very quick sort of biography that was just given there of significant moments in the life of the walk of, with God of Jacob. And Hosea is just outlining and highlighting these, these real experiences of their patriarch. But verse 6 He changes perspectives and he says, but what about you? He says, what about you? That's Jacob. A heritage of godliness is a blessing, but it's not a guarantee. Don't assume things about yourself spiritually. Don't drift away from God. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice. And look, it says, and wait continually for your God. I love this. Makes it so personal. Says, so you and your God. Says, wait continually. The word there in the Hebrew for wait, it means to wait eagerly, to wait with tenseness. It's the same word in the verse Isaiah 26, 8. Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait for you. 
Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. This waiting for the Lord is what we are called to do. Yeah, a heritage of faith, it's a, it's a blessing. Amen. But it's not a guarantee. And we, each of us, have to be so careful that we're not drifting away from God, that we're not moving from the point where we were put in the water, that we're not keeping our focus on our fixed point, making assumptions about ourselves spiritually. It's so dangerous. So look, it's going to continue talking about Jacob and just other things. Look at verse 7. We're going to see how we got to beware of deceit and self-reliance. It says, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress It'll stop there. See, I love this. You know, the word Jacob means deceiver. They're like, you're like Jacob. You're like him in the wrong ways. You're a deceiver. Verse 8, Ephraim has said, ah, but I'm rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I, the Lord your God, from the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feasts. It's really amazing here. Just so you know, Ephraim, that's a nickname for Israel. That's the largest tribe. Um, it's the tribe that King Saul comes from. Um, we're going to talk more about them as we go into chapter 13. But that's all it is, just a nickname. He's still talking about Israel. And he's just saying, I mean, look at the self-reliance that Ephraim is declaring. Look at verse 8. That's amazing. Look at verse 9, what God says he'll do. He says, I'll put you back in the tent, bro. He's like, you're all puffed up. You think you've made it? We'll go back to the wilderness. Actually, Israel used to have a feast. It's talking about that here where they would for seven days go back and live in tents just to remind their souls and their hearts of their dependence on God and how they need him and where he took them from. But they had stopped celebrating that feast in the day of Hosea. He's like, we could go back to the tents. We could go back to set up and break down. You know what I mean? Like, we could go there. And he's like, he's like, don't go there. Don't drift from God. Don't make assumptions spiritually. Look at verse 10 through 14. The key here is beware of putting a patriarch above a prophet. Beware of putting tradition above scripture. Look at, look at it here, verse 10. It says, I spoke, that's God, to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt and by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation to the Lord. will leave his blood guilt on him and repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Only thing I want to point out here is God's like, look, hey, when I wanted a wife, when I wanted a people, when I wanted the people of Israel, I spoke. I spoke through a prophet. He's talking about Moses. And my prophet delivered my people from Israel. When Jacob, your patriarch, your tradition that you're putting above my word, when he wanted a wife, what do you have to do? He had to go be a slave for 14 years just to get the wife he wanted. The point is, listen to the prophet. Listen to the word. Don't put the patriarch above the prophet. That's what he's saying here. It's really, really, really profound. And again, the point. Do not drift away from God with assumptions about yourself spiritually. So friends, here's the question here, the challenging question. Are you drifting? Are you making these assumptions? Perhaps you have a background in church. 
or Christian school. Maybe you have a close relative that you have a close relationship with who's in the ministry. But let me encourage you. What about you? What about your heart? Do not drift away from God through making assumptions spiritually about yourself. A heritage of faith is a blessing, but it is not a guarantee. Second point, second encouragement. Do not bow your heart toward an idol and its destructive effects. Do not bow your heart toward an idol and its destructive effects. We're going to be in chapter 13 for this one. Here we go. So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 3. When Ephraim, remember we talked about who that is, spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. So that's a good start, right? What happens? But he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And And now they sin more and more. And make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. All right. Ephraim has a problem. The problem is idolatry. And hopefully we're kind of getting it now from the book of Hosea that idolatry is to the Lord spiritual adultery. It is spiritual prostitution, right? It is offensive to the bridegroom. So that's, that's kind of the big lesson in Hosea. And Ephraim's idol was Baal. And I know none of us woke up this morning really with that temptation, right? Southridge or the Baal Temple? Not sure. No one had that struggle this morning. The first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 is about idolatry. That we should not put any other gods before our God. Idolatry is a huge thing. You say, I'm not struggling with Baal. Idolatry, but what form of idolatry does your heart tend to wander toward? It's important to know that. I've heard it said that you can find your idols... By looking at whatever your unyielding emotions are. You can find your idols by looking at what your unyielding emotions are. Have you ever been so anxious or afraid that you cannot shake it throughout the day until you resolve it and regain control in some way? I'm just sharing because I've heard about these. I've never experienced any of them. (laughs) Totally joking, right? These are just from my journal. You know what I mean, though? You've, you, you read an email that you sent. You read it three times. What's wrong? What's going on there? What about you're so angry you just can't drop it? You daydream all day long about winning arguments and, like, you know, giving pile drives. Like, it's just crazy, right? No one's ever had that experience, though. You're so discouraged or grumpy that you can't shake the spirit of grumpiness that has a hold on you, right? Anybody ever struggle with the spirit of grumpiness? (laughs) I have. Man. So an idol can be found oftentimes by looking at what are your unyielding emotions that are controlling you. Because you are a slave to your master, your idol. It's controlling you. And an idol is anything, it can be a good thing, that we make more fundamental than God to our happiness, to our purpose in life, and to our identity. It is... And New York City Pastor Tim Keller helpfully states, an idol is whatever you look at 
and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant. I'll feel secure. So here's a question. Who is bowing their heart more toward an idol? A Catholic, maybe, person who's lighting a candle to Mary? A Buddhist person who's leaving some fruit at a shrine in a Buddhist temple? Or the Christian who is every day, without challenging their heart, bowing to to control, bowing to manipulation, bowing to you know, security, to money, to fear and controlling anxiety. I mean, who's more the idolater? And so we have to be careful with our own hearts, right? We've got to know our heart. Do not bow your heart toward an idol and its destructive effects. And so that's what we see here in chapter 13. I want to keep going because I want to show you the destructive effects, which are really quite profound. Verse 4, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. Verse 4 would be a great circle it verse just to kind of say to your idol. (laughs) Verse 5, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts. And there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, this is what we say to our idols, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger. And I took him away in my wrath. We see the destructive effects of idolatry. One of them is just pride, right? We see this sort of, this sort of development of pride in, in Ephraim. And it's so destructive. And look what else. There's foolishness is a destructive effect of when our hearts are bowed to idolatry. Look at verse 12. We see the picture here of foolishness using the illustration or analogy of childbirth. It says, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. Look at verse 13. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. <laughs> it's like, it's, like the, it's just an, an analogy, right? It's just saying, Ephraim, like the, 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 the contractions are ready. It's time. All the circumstances are pointing to say, it's time for you to do your thing. And he's like, I'm foolish. I'm ignorant to circumstances. I am not reading all the signs that God is putting in my life, pointing out my idolatry and telling me to turn back to him. This is what idolatry does to us, though. It makes us foolish. But look at verses 14 through 16, because I want you to see here, and this is what Hosea does. He lays these cards on the table. He'll lay hope, he'll lay judgment, then he'll lay hope. He'll lay them right next to each other. It's a profound book. Verse 14 through 16, we see hope and judgment side by side. Verse 14, I will, well, you could read it this way. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? 
yet compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall, shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Wow. So we're going to just look at these super quick. But think about this. Verse 14 is amazing. God is talking trash to death. Death, where's your sting? Hell, where's your victory? Paul will later take this up in 1 Corinthians 15 and apply it to the results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. This is a profound, hopeful verse that is just laying right side by side to one of the darkest sort of verses of judgment in all of the Bible. Because it continues into verse 16 where where we see the consequences of Israel's sin is that the war tactics of this wicked nation, Assyria, will overcome them. And the defenseless women and children will die. And this is a very horrible verse. And this verse does not depict what God desires, not at all. But it does depict the seriousness and consequences and collateral damage of idolatry and sin. And we can't ignore this verse. We shouldn't just skim past it. I actually have a whole paper written on this verse in my car. <laughs> but, um, you know, we should allow this verse to help us see the seriousness of sin. Thanks be to God that he provides his own innocent and sinless son to take our judgment and death for us. The greatest thing that ever happened to us was one of the greatest injustices. So, I mean, I think an application for the second point, the second encouragement is to just identify your one to two points of vulnerability to idolatry. And to seek to sort of unplug the power cord on those idols. To seek to destroy those idols, to destroy their power in your life. And the best way to do it is to be super excited about someone greater, and that's Christ. So to treasure Jesus Christ above all and allow him to be fundamental to your identity. All right, third encouragement, and really the encouraging encouragement. The first two are kind of like warnings, right? The second one is be always returning to Jesus who heals and revives. So just as a way of review, do not drift away from God with assumptions about yourself spiritually. Do not bow your heart toward an idol and its destructive effects. And now here, be always returning to Jesus who heals and revives. Improved health comes from diet and exercise, right? Spiritual health comes through repentance. Every blessing God wants to bring into our lives, he wants to bring through the funnel of repentance. Martin Luther wrote the 95 Thesis and put it on the, the door, right, to start the Reformation. And one of the big points in it is that all of life is repentance. You know, when something happens to your computer, or when you're on your computer and you get to a point and you're like, I want, I want that, what do you do? 
You hit the return button, right? God so profoundly created our computers to remind us that the key, the key in life is returning to the Lord. What is repentance? I mean, it's to change your mind, attitude, and action about your sin and return to God. To change your mind, attitude, and action about your sin and return to God. So in the ways that we've been drifting, in the ways that we've been bowing our hearts to an idol, we change our mind, we change our attitude, we change our actions about our sin, and we return to God. And God wants us to do that. He's pleading for us to do that in chapter 14. So look at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Verse 2 through 3, he gives us... He gives us the way to do it. He gives us words. He says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. A cereal shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. (laughs) And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I love that. End of verse 3. I mean, it just is so clear about the heart attitude of repentance. The orphan attitude. God, I don't deserve this, but would you give it to me? Return to the Lord. Be always returning to Jesus who heals and revives. 4 through 9, we just see these incredible promises of those who return. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. You know, uh, sometimes we we see people when we think, man, that's an extra grace needed person. I don't have the spiritual gifts to care for that person. You know, that's really all of us. And that's definitely Israel in the book of Hosea. And the end of the book of Hosea is God saying, I can handle that. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am an evergreen cypress from me comes your fruit. And by the way, Ephraim means fruitful. He's saying, Ephraim, you want to be who you truly are created to be? Get it from me. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. The ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble. So as we close, you know, earlier... I, I said the risky statement that the book of Hosea is almost like, like one of those TV shows, right? Where there's like this fighting couple and intervention and, 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 and it kind of is that way. I mean, there's just this really dysfunctional and troubled relationship. And we are the dysfunction in that relationship. That's the huge difference. God is always faithful. God is always loving. He is always true. He is just. He will discipline those whom he loves. But he will keep his covenant with those whom he makes a covenant. 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, he remains 
faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So sometimes like in those really cheap TV shows that are way inferior to Hosea, but we're just using this really imperfect parallel, sometimes there'll be a commercial break and then a little bit later it'll show the couple in five years, right? <laughs> like Here's where they're at in five years. And that's kind of a cool thing with the Bible is that you can see where it's leading. It's a, it's a story and the story's not over. Israel will not repent. Israel will go right into exile in Assyria and later Judah, their, their brothers in the south, to Babylon. And they will be disciplined by the Lord and judged for their sin and their breaking of the covenant. But the story's not over because Nehemiah is going to start building. And then angels are going to announce a birth. And then John the Baptist is going to be crying in the wilderness. And then Jesus is going to come. And he's going to be tempted in the wilderness to give in to idolatry. And he will perfectly resist that temptation with the truth of God. And at his baptism, the Lord is going to look at him and say, this is my son. Ephraim disappointed you, but this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He goes to Egypt and God calls him out of Egypt just like the people of God in Hosea. It's really, really amazing. And Jesus will then head to Jerusalem, head to a mock trial. He'll head to the cross, and he will receive the judgment of God, not that he deserved, but that we deserve. And because of that, God's anger will be turned away from those who are hidden in his son. This time, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will heal and revive his people. And so God's love prevails. And so it is that the pen of Paul would thousands of years after Hosea write, death, where's your sting? Hell, where's your victory? Quoting from Hosea chapter 13. And ringing that verse from the Old Testament into the New Testament to us this morning. Praise God. Let me close in prayer. Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.